Hey there, NFT Curious listeners. This is Ethan Janney from the Edge of Company in the Edge of NFT podcast. We're here with you in Davos, Switzerland today, coming to you from the World Economic Forum convention that happens here every year. We're gonna bring you some of the sharpest minds and global leaders telling you what they think about what's next and how they're making it happen. In today's episode, we're gonna transition from one interview to the next with a sound effect briefly in between to just give you that feeling that you're here with us, transitioning from one engaging conversation to the other. So stay tuned, sit back, Relax and enjoy. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Well, hello everyone. Right now we're here and this is our first interview from Davos. Man, we are excited to be here. It's very beautiful. Such great energy here. Super intelligent people who are also crazy doers. Did some pre-interview with our guest today and, you know, when he walks up this door, he'll probably done more uh, before the end of the day than I've done in 10 years. But uh, let's intro him. His name is Nitin Gaur. And uh, his name tag actually still says IBM. He just moved from IBM to State Street uh, very recently. But uh, Nitin, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, give some um, context on who you are and where you're coming from, and then we'll dive into some questions. No, thanks again for the invitation, uh, Nitin Gaur. I founded uh, the Blockchain Labs at IBM and then realized that we were doing a lot more technical than digital assets. So then I was fortunate to found a digital asset lab to bring the context of digital asset into technology realm. It's been, gosh, I think about a decade or 10 years. And then I recently moved to Straight Street, which is one of the largest custody banks in the world, in sort of with an ambition to elevate uh, and modernize the technical infrastructure for financial services. But at the same time, the long-term vision is to be able to understand, adapt, and exploit the newer emerging space that is driven by crypto, uh, largely. I live in Austin, Texas, but uh, glad to be here. Oh, cool. So maybe we'll see you in a few weeks at Consensus at as Consensus, well. At Consensus, yes. One of the biggest events. Great, great. Well, I guess you've been to Davos many times, and I'd love to get your perspective on how the landscape is involved in terms of the conversation around cryptocurrency and blockchain today versus maybe even five years ago. Yeah, I know. Fantastic. I think five years back, I think 2018, this is by bypassing the two-year gap that we had because of obviously COVID. The first year I was here is super interesting. A lot of energy. In fact, this very space was occupied by Consensus, which is the, the boutique, at the time was boutique uh, crypto consulting firm. Now they morph into much, you know, many more things. What is interesting was that you had the establishment, the traditional World Economic Forum, with the objective of changing the state of the world as we know it. So you had the industrialists and you had the, you know, the politicians, the bankers. And then bang opposite of that, you had the folks who also had the same, you know, intention in terms of, you know, having an alt agenda in terms of the state of the world, uh, which is blockchain. So it was an interesting moment because you had super secure, high security infrastructure, and then opposite you had folks in jeans and hoodies, you know, jeans and hoodies, talking about how do we disrupt the world, the state of banking, financial services, economic inclusion, digital identity. It was a surreal moment for me, and you begin to then realize that you had the traditional establishment and the alt establishment, which is looking into changing the order 
with technology in, in the world. And I think that was reimagining finance. reimagining finance, reimagining identity, reimagining everything with trust, with accountability, and and uh, which I think was just fantastic. And while it was in winter, which is difficult if you come to Davos in winter because right. you have slopes and you have to have the right shoes. It was super interesting. There was amazing energy, uh, amazing innovators. And it then became a tradition. So we come here every year, you you know, just to be able to network, but at the same time, look into what others are doing, feed off the energy that's floating around, which is what we can see here. Right? So not to ask too much of a leading question, sure. but I mean, how has the counter-establishment establishment sort of integration, intermixing evolved? Like, has there been more integration over the last five years? Or are we really dealing with two different sides of the fence here? I think there has been a lot more integration every year. So first year, there was a complete separation. These are blockchain guys, and this is like, you know, with the badges and everything else. It's like walk past. Walk past badge. I mean, I'll go touch. And here, every two steps, you find a blockchain entity and blockchain booth. And, and these are entities who are trying to not only establish uh, the technology to be able to build the new things, but also have amazing new projects. So you'll find a lot more people with the WEF badges who are, you know, who are now pop hanging and up and, pop and, by. and by. Pop and by, trying to understand the space. So I think there's a lot more synergy. There's a lot more acceptance. And I think uh, I was in a session here with Financial Times early on that the fact that you had the presidential working group and the, the executive order that was released a few months back is to me saying that, you know, we need to understand the space and we have viewed now crypto as a fifth asset class. So suddenly now things are, the tides are turning and understanding the space, which I think is just fantastic from that perspective. It's helpful to understand. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective. And man, we'll have to have you back because I think we could talk to you for a long time. We don't have a long time with you, but you just made this transition, as we mentioned, from IBM uh, to State Street. We want to talk about State Street, but just give us a little bit more about what you achieved at IBM, because as we were talking about, you know, again, before we started recording, you achieved a lot. I'd love to kind of let people know what, what you've been up to there. Yeah, it was an interesting journey, 2012, so early days of blockchain. So imagine the time it takes to explain to many executives, including our own, as to why we should invest in the space. And it took me two years with a bunch of support. And then we founded Blockchain Labs, went to 12 different countries. I've traveled to 140 different countries in this context in helping governments and central banks understand the Potential. Did you just say you personally went to yes, I personally 140, to 140 different countries oh my gosh. Right. to be able to, uh, you know, and I had the first you know, front row seats to the changes and evolution. But the early four or five years was purely education, helping them understand. And as a tech company, our role at the time I viewed as is helping them transition and understanding the tech, providing all the raw materials for them to be able to do the transition. And so it's been a decade. And then I've, besides the labs, then I founded a payment network, which is the Worldwire cross-border payment network, uh, brought the issue of digital assets because then we quickly realized as a tech company, we were getting into the weeds of actually selling the techs and databases, which is not the intent. So the intent was really to go back to bringing the notion of digital assets in the ecosystem. And when you say you founded, is that something that's external to IBM or internal? Instead like, of IBM, right? Because right. at the end of the day, you found an entity, but you need funding and you need to be able to get the teams and to hire people and yeah. establish an organization. And IBM has quite a, quite a robust network for well, making that happen. That's, and we have like 90% of World's Bank at the time were IBM customers. Yeah. So we naturally had the appetite to be able to go and speak to them. And it was not only a new business opportunity, but also a massive element of transforming, using digital transformation. Mm -hmm. Though I have now shifted my vernacular from digital transformation to transforming digital. So you're just transforming digital itself mm -hmm. to serve us, which is why you're here with NFTs and what we begin to see right. in that space. 
And it was a hard decision to leave after 10 years, but I think we all need to get away from our comfort zone, grow. And I think working for someone, something as, you know, with amazing leadership at State Street Digital is to be able to understand financial services and elevate the infrastructure to compete and adapt and embrace what's happening in the crypto space. And, and my long-term goal is to actually bridge Tradify and DeFi, which is the ability for you to take your traditional financial assets, move it into the crypto space, and vice versa, in the regulated and a, and a streamlined way with all the protections in place. I mean, I've been hearing about this happening with real estate transactions now, where you can collateralize your crypto for a DeFi loan and purchase a home while you're actually making money on your base crypto through DeFi. That's right. Right? So is that something you're looking at? Actually, I I personally, I actually bought a house two years, three years back in Austin uh, using Bitcoin, which was an interesting experiment. And I do a lot of these experiments only because... And you had to put in your KYC became a big issue at the time. Like, what are you doing? Like, I live in the same neighborhood. I've been here for the longest time. So I think some of those examples are decided, which is ability for me to collateralize my crypto or collateralize my real estate to be able to borrow, lend, and engage in financial primitives, the borrowing, lending, collateralization. We begin to see in a small doses at the moment, which is real world assets or RWAs right, coming into crypto space. I think we should see more of those, which is ability for you to take your Fidelity account, your ETFs, and be able to collateralize and have an interchangeable asset movement as you find an opportunity in a different space. So, so is that a little bit of a sneak peek of what's to come at State Street? Actually, um, I would say that this is my personal journey as to where I want to go with this space. And I think the financial industry in general is grappling with it because at the end of the day, it's about markets. It's about liquidity. It's about the expanse of the growth. And everybody wants want to tap into that growth. And as the crypto industry is growing maniacally and, you know, with a certain pace, we'd like to basically understand that growth and tap into the potential in that space. But there's also a transformation play here. If you were to tokenize an existing asset class and be able to build the rails and not only you're achieving transactional efficiency, but you're also achieving a certain level of capital efficiency, which is ability for us to be able to move money on time, look into risks. So there's a lot more to unpack at the traditional finance level, which is still very siloed, still very uh, fragmented, so to speak, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of what you're doing at State Street, how does that plan come together? Like, are you working with a team, a larger team? Are they putting you kind of in charge of what's going on? How's that plan coming Uh, together? The way this would work is that to say that someone in charge is, I think it's a huge industry. You need a very set of skill sets. Uh, There's amazing leadership at State Street to understand the industry. And there are, there's a whole new team called Street Street Digital that was formed in I think, June or July of 2021 with the name to be able to elevate and bring up the old element of digital banking in this space. And so we all have different expertise uh, looking into asset tokenization, looking into digital asset custody, which, as you know, is a big business for State Street as a custodian bank, but also looking into figuring out the element of payments and stablecoin and how do we build systems that can consume and adopt CBDCs in future, which is central bank digital currencies or tokenized fiat. So there's a lot of science, there's a lot of domain expertise that you need from existing financial services, which they have. And so many of us who are joining the entities are bringing the industry as well as the technical expertise to be able to join hands and figure out a system that, one, is working in the regulated terms in terms of what we're doing, because there's a fiduciary element, there's a potential treatment of assets. But at the same time, ensuring that we're doing everything by the book and still modernizing and forging ahead in terms of adopting technology to be able to transform and disrupt the industry itself. So 
let's talk about stable coins and their lack of stability sure. for 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 <laughs> a moment. Um, <laughs> you know, there I had a uh, a meeting at a train station in Zurich on the way over to Davos, and there's a particular gentleman that said his team sees more instability in in stable coins, coins, and potentially a couple other yeah. uh, fallen soldiers, so to speak. Do you guys have a position yet on sort of the stablecoin market and any favorites among the, the pack of stablecoins that, that you're feeling a little bit more bullish about? I got to uh, pick. So let me do, to, uh, talk to you as an industry professional, right? Being in the industry for such a long time. And I have spent in my digital asset labs days, uh, literally spent about six to seven years in delivering central bank digital currency projects. Uh, looked into stablecoin closely in terms of business model, and I have now recently started socializing the term digital fiat, only because of the last fallout that we've seen with bad governance, bad uh, handling of UST fiasco that we had with Luna and Terra Network. And I think we begin to now classify collateral back versus reserve backed. Collateral back is collateral can go up and down in value, and what is a collateral and how to define it versus reserve, which is if you're pegging a tokenized something with a fiat, which is hence the term digital fiat then it's tied to a dollar. And dollar may go up and down based on global macro events like you know, inflation and money supplies that we have seen in the last uh, two years. It's still tied and pegged to the USD, right? So that's a reserve-backed model. And, and there's still volatility there. I mean, I've been in, in Switzerland for a week. Yeah. One day it was a one for one. The next day it was, uh, uh, it, it was like two cents less. You yes, know? Uh, this is the, the USDT and USDC. I was just referring to the, the normal... Um, yeah you know, US dollars to to Swiss francs. Like in yeah. in my point being that, you know, the idea of stability, it's a goal on the horizon, yeah. but it, it's it's not perfect, even in, in the in currency the world, markets. In the currency yeah. markets. Absolutely. So the whole FX market and the arbitrage opportunities that people see in terms of in, in foreign exchange is exactly the same. That you have a few cents up and down based on the global events that are happening in the world. So I think that if you're and the reason why stable coins we have to go back to why they came into existence. They came into existence because you had all these elements of crypto assets and they didn't have a fungible token, a fungible asset. Fungible is essentially an exchange mechanism. And so they had to bring stable coin so people who understand dollars and cents could equate the crypto assets and you need to have duality for transaction where if I'm sending you a token, I need something in return. It's not a one-way street at that point. And stable coin came to solve the problem of fungibility and payments in that ecosystem. So to your point, I think if you're tying a stable coin to an asset, then it has to be one-to-one -one mapping. Collateralization or what has been the basket of currencies, a basket of assets, becomes a challenging element because now you have element of valuation, element of data. Where do you extract the data from? And how do you come to a certain value becomes a very questionable element and the trust piece of it. So you have centralized entity keeping an asset. You just have to take your word for it as opposed to a third party guaranteeing a fiat that's kept into a reserve account, for instance. So some of these things, to me, is not, not being bullish or, or bearish on these asset classes. To me, it's about the utility of the asset. I'm looking at stablecoin as a purely utility element that today, to me, it's a bridging element between Tarify and DeFi. That if you want to participate in this ecosystem and you're not a crypto native person, you're not mining, you're not dealing with the crypto and don't understand that, the easiest way for you is to convert your dollars into a stablecoin and then begin to participate in that ecosystem. And that, it, that, that, that has a lot of value. It brings in a lot of people from the traditional finance world. So to me, today, stablecoin is providing utility. It's bringing a lot of participants from the non-crypto native world to participate in this, which is what we need at the moment. But are we going to have more fallen soldiers? We will definitely have more fallen soldiers. And I think people have a short-term memory. We've seen that with traditional markets. 
though I don't think the element of uh, algorithmic stable coins are gone. I think they will resurface when the market is up. And to a certain extent, I think there's a lot of math behind it. I think in this case, the fallen soldier element was purely bad governance and bad ill-conceived business models as opposed to technology itself. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I do think that technology itself has a bigger role to play. And eventually, the algorithms and the math behind it should be tested, validated, and it'll work well. It's just a matter of time in terms of getting that right. Yeah, I mean, USDT has, has gone through a couple bear market cycles, right? Yes. And survived. Yes. Um, and USD did not. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, they had recently, just the naming too, USDT and USD led to like 9 billion plus or whatever withdrawal from Tether's ecosystem. Wow. And that to me was, and I'm more reading about it. I, I mean, you know, it's ups and downs. And, and I, I spoke to Jeremy Hilaire this week at USDC. They have, they have taken a completely regulated path to say it's only going to be reserved back. This, you know, very small element is going to be in commercial paper. So I think it's... Some of those balancing act is a necessary element. And I also see this as a case study. The next time I'm looking at a stable coin, I need to look into say, you should not be doing these four things because we know those four things don't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, I want to bring this back to our earlier conversation around DeFi. And we talked about the, the sort of start of the Davos experience of, of centralization, decentralization, anti or alt, if you said. We're now at a point where you just mentioned USDC and, and sort of their more conservative approach. And there's conservative approaches to NFTs, like there's criticism of what's happened with other deeds. And there's conservative approaches to DeFi with more centralization. How do you reconcile those two perspectives of centralizing decentralized sort of assets in order to create more control and governance in a world where this was supposed to be an alternative reimagine financial instrument. Yeah. So I think to me, the spectrum, right? And I use the word quasi-decentralization all the time, that we live in a super centralized world from governments to banks and financial institutions. And next thing you know, you have this super disruptive decentralized technology, which knows no bounds, which actually is not. The governance structure is built into the protocol itself. But there are still humans who are devising these protocols. So I would say this, and I will say this going on a limb to say that 90% of DeFi projects are actually centralized projects. They're leveraging the decentralized networks, Bitcoin, for example, and Ether, for example, these are networks that have built-in decentralization protocols. I'm much more bullish on Web3.0, which is decentralization of the fundamental primitives, the compute, the interconnect, and the storage, which provides the computer infrastructures for you to build upon the layers. So most DeFi layers are individuals coming up with projects, which have a certain thesis in terms of offering those financial primitives that we talked about, lending, borrowing, collateralization, and giving you a high yield and high return. And that, again, is governed by the basic principles of demand and supply in the ecosystem. But I would say that, to me, this is a spectrum that you just cannot switch from going to a bank and withdrawing money to say, I'm just switching to Bitcoin tomorrow. It has to be a journey. And to me, where we are today is that spectrum of quasi-decentralization to say, we need to understand the space, but we need to actually have a model that people understand. And hence, the element of the walleting structures that are emerging for people to understand the wallets, to, un- to connect to a network mm-hmm. and buy and sell and, yeah. and, and do some of these. And that's, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's why we're here in Davos, right? Yes, it's to make right. these changes and, and put things together and bring the good minds together. Yeah, no, I, I was just, as you're sharing your perspective, I, I haven't been to Burning Man. I don't know if you've been to Burning <laughs> Man or, or, or... I certainly want to go someday. But, 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 <laughs> but, but I think about the conversation we just had and the similarities to the conversations of old burners versus new burners. Yeah. So fully decentralized chaos, right, right, in the first few years, has gotten a little centralized. Some of the OGs don't love yeah. it. 
but it's had to happen as it's evolved and, and it's a constant tension. Yeah, and I'll tell you this though, the reason why some of us got into it is we've always had this adage, which we coined in 2012, at least instead of IBM when we were working at this, is what internet has done for information. Our kids around the world have, they play the same games, they have access to the same information. Yes, they may get a little slower because of internet speed, but they still have access to the information. Mm-hmm. To what blockchain will do for, for things of value. Mm-hmm. And if you look at today, whether you have Ether in the United States or you have Ether in Vietnam, the rules of engagement are exactly the same. It's incredible, yeah. So there's an egalitarian element to this. There's a level playing field agenda to this, which I think is very, very profound and powerful mm-hmm. right in the long run. Yes, the fact that you're tied to a banking account, and we talked about this, the rails in terms of bridging, uh, bringing your fiat, is an interim impediment that we have to deal with. And that's the quasi element of, of decentralization. But I think Axie Infinity showed us that, that you have an alternative asset classes that you can subscribe and play and eventually move to Ether and suddenly now you can elevate your mm-hmm. your standard to anybody living in the you know the Western world or who have access to much more advanced financial systems that we've devised over time. So it has a very profound value and I think that's exactly the Burning Man's or the Davos, whatever is your is your flavor of uh, of of the event. We're going to Burning Man together yeah. at some point. You have to take me there. I, I don't know how do you even get tickets. Do you need tickets for these things? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure make some it out after we're done. I, I think there's a lot That's of people in our industry that can help us with that. <laughs> got it. Got it. So we're definitely in the interest of getting to everything we've got to do today. We're going to have to wrap up, and we want to make sure we have a, a chance to for you to say you know where people can find out more about what you're up to and the projects you're building. Make sure, I know you have your own podcast. I, I would love to hear about that. But yeah, please just take a moment to share so people know where to go. Yeah, I'm not a big social media guy. I do follow LinkedIn because of professional connections. So LinkedIn is the best place. I do do Twitter a little bit. So LinkedIn is a great time to connect with me. I do. I started podcasts only because there's an element of thought leadership that you have to synthesize and digest the information that's coming from around the world and simplify it for our audiences. Mm-hmm. So the podcast is Beyond Bitcoin. Which again and again, I've just joined uh, Straight Through Digital and I'm still in the consuming and learning phase because you're out of your comfort zone, which is an amazing growth opportunity is to learn and understand what's, what the industry is up to. So stay tuned and hopefully within the next few months when I get my feet on the ground and begin to socialize the work that the amazing teams are already building and I just become the catalyst of progressing that forward. Well, sounds good. We'll have to have you on the official podcast uh, and maybe next quarter when you got your feet on the ground, you can tell us a little bit more about what you're up to and what that roadmap looks like. That'd be great. Meanwhile, such a pleasure to have you uh, visit us today and hope you have a very uh, productive Davos experience. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me over. It was a great conversation. Hey there, welcome back to Davos with us and we're getting rolling with some really incredible interviews with the most fascinating folks in the world, I have to say. (laughs) We've only met a few of them, but we're good so far on that statement. So I want to introduce Sham Nagarajan, but I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about himself and give some context and say what he's been up to. Well, Josh, Ethan, thank you for the opportunity. I'm thrilled that you consider that I am fascinating. (laughs) I am... Oh, wait, no, did we get the wrong guy? Uh, yeah, no, probably. <laughs> Listen, I'm an executive partner at IBM, and I focus on Web3 and sustainability and metaverse. I've been in the blockchain business for about six years now. Okay. And uh, day one from IBM. And interesting right so far, and very cool to see the market mature, what enterprises are doing, as well as how the crypto world has progressed. So. 
Great. And we heard previously, this is your first year at Davos, yes? Yeah, it is the first year at Davos. Typically, I've focused a lot of my efforts and time on enterprise blockchain, which is in the world of permission ledgers. And what's happening now is very exciting in the fact that the world is transitioning to and embracing more of the open protocols. Mm-hmm. And Davos is the place to be for that. Great. And, and you were sharing with us a little bit before about a pretty major transition within IBM that you're spearheading. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, look, IBM has always been uh, a technology company that's focused on enterprises. Right. And we are not a consumer company, although we do have some brands that work with consumers directly, including your weather channel and the app on your phone. What is we are seeing is that that's good. Enterprises are now starting to embrace the business-to-consumer technologies. And it's important to help break down what we call this walled gardens, where you have all the crown jewels, the data, the assets that enterprises have to be able to monetize and tokenize in the open world, in the open protocols. Mm -hmm. On the other angle that I've also learned and found is that building consortiums are hard and doing business in the ecosystem of a community needs you to embrace uh, different open technologies. And this is the path where we are leading that change. So that's the transition, yeah. very exciting for so, us. So I don't talk about it a lot on the show. Um, I don't go this far back in my history, but you know, I was in management consulting for about a decade and I worked on some of those open government initiatives, <laughs> um, you know, housing and urban development and some of those agencies. And man, it's a process to sort of embark on that journey when you peel back the layers of privacy and protections and, and governance and everything. Why go there? Like, why take on such a, a massive shift like this? And what are your hopes and objectives from, from doing so? Well, look, reality of uh, today's market in the world is uh, transparency and trust is key. And blockchain Web3 as a technology allows you to do that. But it also allows, um, makes you embrace things that were uncomfortable before working with a competitor being more transparent about uh, who you're doing business with. It's a forcing function. Exactly. And also the shareholders in the markets are demanding that you actually report your uh, sustainability initiatives and uh, put out your KPIs and metrics. The fact that today organizations are you know, highly motivated to fudge that data is, uh, mm. is uh, one of the reasons why embracing these kind of technologies are going to be very important to assure their shareholders that it's actually true and real data. Mm-hmm. So uh, interesting shifts, ecosystem, businesses, and uh, way of working is starting to take root. And, you know, traditional forms of uh, go-to-market aren't as effective as before. Yeah, it's so fascinating. You know, there there's some shifts that just you just have to make. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you say, "Oh, well, we got to do this." You mentioned it previously, and we haven't covered it yet, but you sort of brought up the sustainability. You talked about being heavily involved in metaverse. We're really fascinated with that world. We have an NFT project which has uh, NFTs that are metaverse ready, augmented reality ready. It's also integrated with sustainability. We're planting trees with our NFTs. So we'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, as someone who's heavily focused on the metaverse, 
Are there some things that maybe people who aren't in your position aren't noticing that might be important for us to look out for? Or even just tell us what you're focused on within the metaverse. Well, look, I put on a lens of how does metaverse help and aid uh, enterprises to either build a better and a more closer relationship with their community and customer base. That's number one. But also, I also see that as a way to better engage even your own employees and audience to have a, I mean, for heaven's sake, how many of these Zoom calls have we done in the last two years Mm. that we've gotten tired of, right? It doesn't really engage you. It's just a screen and watching the screen has no real engagement of the user. What I'm starting to see is the impact of this kind of enriched technology and engagement applied to education, the fact that you could use rewards and loyalty to engage and continue to, you know, things like uh, play to earn or move to earn kind of concepts. I'm also starting to see uh, virtual onboarding of employees into organizations. So these are all uh, places where I absolutely think this technology will make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, now that you mentioned that, I've been really struck by some of the articles about companies that are turning sort of, you know, celebrations of anniversaries of employment into NFTs, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, it's a great use case. And who needs like a a dusty Trotsky in their house, right? Yeah, Um, I know. So so maybe that you could do something with IBM in in that area, do some NFTs for employee employee recognition. Believe me, it's not just employee recognition. Absolutely. I mean, we are thinking, I'm already thinking about that. And we are working on some pilots around it. So fun. more like uh, we're talking about certifications, mm, right? yeah. which at the end of the day, when you issue them as NFTs, they are yes. transferable, more recognizable and unquestionable. So um, it's it's not just to uh, employ at an employee level. Now you could uh, think of it as a student anywhere in the, the globe who can have access to that NFT uh, credentials that they can take anywhere else. So. Yeah. That's really exciting. And you also mentioned to me that you're interested in use cases well beyond like being able to paint in a virtual world or, or fly around the metaverse, right? We're, we're talking about intellectual property, which is, you know, a massive, massive industry. And I have friends that work at PTO and I've done some consulting PTO and wow, that there's so many opportunities there. Could you elaborate on what your thoughts are there for IBM and what we have to look forward to? in terms of solving that challenge using Web3 technology? Well, look, uh, I will tell you my entry into the NFT world was in um, October, November 2020, right? I mean, that's when it started getting a little bit of a mature as a user. Does that mean you have an NBA Top Shots card? Uh, I (laughs) do have one. (laughs) But that said, I've been following the market. And what I quickly realized is that non-fungible token is and can be applied to beyond just the the gaming world or the art world or the digital image world. It can be used to solve some of our uh, uh, real problems like applying it to intellectual property, copyrights, and uh, being able to track and trace uh, royalties uh, for content that's created. So we work with a startup called IPVE. And IPVE essentially is a, is a phenomenal company that applies uh, blockchain and as well as AI technology to be able to analyze and provide provenance on intellectual property patents that are filed. So we work with them to convert those patents into NFTs. So now these patents can be traded and licensed 
uh, mortgaged and essentially transferred to other parties as real world cases. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, these kind of transactions takes months to execute. That's is really exciting. And I'm just thinking about like the DeFi implications of that, <laughs> like derivatives on the future potential value of a patent that hasn't been realized based on other technologies that you might know are also converging. Now, see, now you're getting somewhere. Um, <laughs> the real problem with the intellectual property world is that the value is locked inside the enterprise with respect to valuation of that IP, valuation of that patent. So the companies, you know, there is some real respect for it from probably the VCs, maybe a little bit from the market. But when you tokenize it, now you can actually expose and monetize it in more ways, mm. right? Now you can also take this and and make it into a kind of a, a securitized asset and put it out in markets that can be owned by many people and therefore they get more liquidity, immediate liquidity as well. So possibilities are enormous. Going back to this metaverse question, I'm yeah. fascinated with your perspective. Got a ton of different directions I could go, but I think one that would be really interesting is, you know, we have Meta mm -hmm. and Meta's metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know how much you're looking into some of the more kind of B2C kind of metaverses like Sandbox or Decentraland or things like that. But could you kind of, let's put two camps, Meta's metaverse yeah. versus these other metaverses, maybe even including your own interior employee metaverse that you've created for training purposes, such so on and so forth. But delineate between those two things. What's the difference? What do you think? Look, I, I think the Decentraland Sandbox kind of environment is cool for consumers to have an experience. And maybe a little bit of uh, engagement by the big brands. You know, JPMC opened up a bank in there and Walmart is looking at a retail store. Those are cool, but they don't or can't control the user engagement as much as in their own world of metaverse, mm. right? their own brand experience metaverse. And I do believe the future is somewhere in between. You do need entry-level community engagement that's more at the consumer level, and then you need your brand experience to be well customized and controlled by the enterprises that actually provide that experience. So you're making a bit of a case for centralization of the metaverse experience, maybe even a preference for the kind of meta opportunity because they can decide on the experience and tweak it to a specific So, so how does that? How does that fit in with the sort of the openness and the transparency and the and the sort of interoperability required to ensure that people don't have, you know, overwhelm from all the different metaverses. What metaverse do I join? It's like having 300 or 3000 cable channels. Like you eventually just give up and you just go to Netflix. Well, you know, Josh, this is the new world. The new world is hybrid. It's not one or the other. It's a combination of both. And how do you effectively make the experience seamless is going to be uh, every brand's challenge. And I do believe this is where the things around um, compliance, copyrights, and transfer of NFT assets going from one metaverse into the other metaverse, the wallet compatibilities, all of that are going to come back and be very important. Mm -hmm. Look, in order for Web3 and metaverse to actually stick, we need to nail the wallet technologies. The fact that uh, an individual, a corporate, and a government can have wallets, and they all need to be able to work together, we're not there yet. 
but that's the transition we are looking and you mentioned you know how do you make sense of these multiple metaverses the fact that corporates can control the brand experience that's what they want but a place like decentraland sandbox gives a community experience to the individual is what they also wish we have to bridge the gap and it's it's going to happen it's happening already in some places that's the right evolution or transition i believe appreciate that well we're definitely going to have to wrap up soon here unfortunately we're doing this with a lot of our interviews feels like we have to cut them short but there's other folks even for you want to chat with i'm sure outside this door so you know maybe a last question in a transition into letting people know where to find out about you but anything that you want to share or you think would be useful from your perspective to share about and and uh, before we wrap and then also where could people find out more about you and your projects we're going through a massive transition with respect to technology maturity as well as market maturity in reception of this technology and fact in fact in probably 2 to 3 years we won't be talking about blockchain just as you know now we are starting to focus more on web3 than blockchain right we are starting to see that what i have also see is a transition where organizations that were deeply rooted in uh, brick and mortar uh, ways of uh, going to market shifting to a digital form and these technologies help and aid in that transition so we are committed to that transition and making sure that enterprises can leverage and take advantage of the digitization of their assets and working with open and uh, crypto protocols so that's where i believe our uh, efforts are going to be great and and should people go to any specific place besides ibm.com to find out more about what is in your world or is well, that the best thing well ibm.com was uh, blockchain is where most of our uh, okay. information is but uh, we do a lot of uh, stuff on linkedin as well so connect with me on linkedin and uh, twitter and we'll go from there perfect all right thanks for joining us all right thank you josh thank you ethan thanks a lot hey there nft space cadet Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbot Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com, it's a health, fitness and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle, to award-winning brain computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white label marketplaces, well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you D-gens who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls, comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe. It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right. This full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole enchilada NFT service can help you. Yes, you, Randy. Launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can high-tail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. 
Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. All right, here we are at Davos once again. Excellent uh, experience, although we've kind of been in our interview space here for uh, an extended a a period of time, so we can't wait to jump outside and mingle and, and mix a little bit more the rest of today, the remainder of today. But our guest right now, we're very happy to be sitting with. His name is Matthias Rusch, and we'll just get started by letting you give a little bit of an intro on yourself, a little bit of context before we get the conversation going. Sure, happy to. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, exciting to be here. And thanks for hosting us of course. Uh, as a media partner for this uh, wonderful house. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a great location, I guess, and, and people pass by and step in, so it's, I'm very happy to be here. So my name is Matthias. I am a founder and CEO of CVVC. That stands for Crypto Valley Venture Capital. It says what we do, we are a venture capital company with a plus, that's how we like to say that. So we invest in uh, startups that build based on blockchain technology, the picks and shovels of the space. So if you're in a room f full of bankers and somebody says crypto and everybody goes like that, we're the alternative, right? <laughs> no danger there, right? And on the other hand, we have our own ecosystem business called CB Labs, where we build global uh, blockchain startup hubs. We have one in, in Zouk right now, building one in Africa, looking into Southeast Asia and other European countries. I myself, I've been a, a founder in the digital startup space since 25 years. I started at over a dozen companies myself, including complete failures, a few successful ones that led me into angel investing, and I stumbled across smart contracts in 2015 that got me into blockchain. Hey, you got in early. <laughs> well, <laughs> depends who you ask, right? <laughs> it's all relative. Um, well, you know, you're based in Switzerland. You've been coming to Davos for quite a long time. Would love to understand your perspective on how the conversation has shifted, how the dynamic of sort of the old guard, new guard has sort of uh, intersected and evolved and, and where we are today in that evolution. So. I was born in Switzerland, right? So born and raised, and of course you know about the World Economic Forum, but until 2017, I would never have gotten an invitation to the World Economic Forum, right? And suddenly that started, you know, and it was all in the context of blockchain. And in order to understand, I think I have to give you some background about Crypto Valley, you know, that term coined for the blockchain, uh, the Swiss blockchain ecosystem that was coined around 2017. and. What you have to know probably is, and a lot of people in the US don't know that, Switzerland has the largest concentration of blockchain companies in the world. It's over 1,200 companies that are based out of Switzerland. It's over 6,000 people working in that sector in Switzerland, right? And the most staggering number is the market cap of the companies based out of Switzerland is over half a trillion USD. No. Of course, there's the Ethereum Foundation in there, uh, uh, second largest blockchain, right? And that's also the reason why we had this growth in Switzerland. So in 2013, Vitalik Buterin and his friends, they were looking for a jurisdiction where they could set up shop basically for, you know, what we know now is Ethereum. And of course, nobody would understand what that is, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they were literally traveling to Singapore, to Switzerland, uh, initially because of tax reasons, right? And they chose Zouk, a tiny, small town in Switzerland. And what happened then was, you know, a lot of projects wanted to recreate the success of that in very initial crowdfunding event through crypto. And hundreds, if not thousands of company came to Switzerland. They were literally knocking at our doors. We were an investor consultant for the startup space there asking, is this Crypto Valley? You know, and they wanted to start right now, start uh, set up shop, 
conduct ICOs, um, you know, the initial coin offerings at the time. So that was the big thing. And everybody was suddenly talking about Davos because that's the place where the global elite meets. So the blockchain community has to be up there. And it, I think it started in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. where if you would walk along uh, the promenade, the main street here in Davos, you would see Microsoft, you would see, you know, the big names, the, maybe Google, um, um, Facebook, of course. And there was one there was one blockchain um, hub. I think it was run by a Ukrainian uh, <laughs> community, if I'm not mistaken. And that's it, you know. But the energy, all the people were gathering around that. You could say that's something. That was the cool kid's house. <laughs> that was the cool kid's house, you know. And then, of course, everybody was hooked up. And at 2019, it was, you know, it was um, uh, even bigger, you know, you could see more hubs, you know, and, you know, the, the stronger the, the, the industry grew, the more players you would see. And then the last time it was on site was 2020 in January it was a winter edition, right? We hosted seven events uh, during that week here. That's like an off-site thing. It's not the official World Economic Forum. It was pre-pandemic, right? We even had a professor from Wuhan flying in for our Chinese roundtable. Oh, wow. So we were probably one of that spreader events. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. So you, you gave us a foundation of kind of how Crypto Valley got started and, and how it's become such a powerful force. Can you tell us a little bit more about the nitty gritty of the day to day of, of being involved in Crypto Valley, you know, major players, you know, how people engage and interact, how much is concentrated in Zook and mm -hmm. what it's like to be there, the transition there. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper on, on how yeah. things are. Happy to do so. So Zook is really the center of it, right? But I think if you to understand why this is a successful hub, let me explain what we identified as the four pillars of a successful ecosystem, like the Silicon Valley, right? So the term is also coined based on Silicon Valley, of course, right? So if you have talent, if you have the, the founders, the pioneers, normally capital follows. So these are the two first pillars. Happened massively with the ICO craze, right? Everybody came there, wanted to set up shop, and money followed, right? Billions went into that, um, into these ICOs in Switzerland uh, uh, back in the days. But then you need infrastructure, and you know, in, with infrastructure, it's not just physical uh, co-working space and stuff like that. But you also need service providers. You need academia. You know, you, you really need an ecosystem that can cater to the needs of these startups, and that was evolving. You know, you had expertise, lawyers that would set up these foundations and everything, and that started growing. And what you then need, and I think that's very important, is you need the support of the government and the regulatory framework. And that's what brought all these startups to Switzerland. And I think that's still the case why a lot of these startups come to Switzerland. Probably the most sustainable um, eco, uh, framework that we have, it was introduced last year. I can give you an example. It's basically three main aspects. We have the token, the term token actually, in the civil code. Hmm. So if you, when we started, Five years ago, people told us, you're not changing the civil code. We changed that like every 10 or 20 years. And we said, well, let's try anyways, right? So it's in a very small article in the civil code. What that means is in Switzerland, you can have your, your shares, your digital shares on a digital ledger, on a blockchain. So there's no wrapper, no, it's just, it's enough. You don't have to have a legacy version of your shareholders, right, of your I, shares. I find the Swiss culture, just being here for, for the last week and a half, fascinating between this sort of real appreciation of history and tradition and, you know, respect for 
a powerful disruptive innovation like you know even even the bathrooms the public bathrooms are radically different than what we have in the United States yeah, I mean, right you know if you look at Switzerland a country without any resources natural resources you have to be open so small 8 million people right you have no to innovate or you have to let people in with great ideas you know mm -hmm. so it's not it's unlikely that the uh, next Elon Musk is just the village uh, next door, right? So you have to have an mm. open-minded attitude when it comes to business. And I think that's the case also when you look at the history of Switzerland uh, after industrialization and everything. And that's also what I think led to that um, growth of the ecosystem. We, we, you know, we, we like to say we have decentralization in our DNA, right? Mm -hmm. There you go. Well, you know, an interesting factor there too. I mean, there, a theme, I think, it's just sort of like a, a very kind of quiet, rational perspective as well, which means that if there's something disruptive, but it makes sense, right? Just because it's new, if it makes sense, like people are willing to accept it. Like give well, me the re reasonable argument and we'll implement it. It was a struggle, uh, to be honest, right? So, so what we did is we founded the Swiss Blockchain Federation, which is a public-private partnership with the government to kind of increase the attractivity and competitiveness of Switzerland as a hub, right? Mm -hmm. So we were working, really working with the parliamentarians. So back 2017, we were organizing these dinners or lunches with, with the members of the parliament. And, and, you know, it would take 30 seconds and you would talk about terrorism financing through Bitcoin and Darknet. So that was the initial... Mm -hmm. narrative right so but that changed over time and, and now you can have a really uh, fruitful discussion about the potential of the technology well let's let's talk about that potential more um, you made an exciting announcement earlier today about a new fund that you've created to support innovation in Africa around web 3 but to step back even further from that you're living and breathing this ecosystem you've been immersed in it in in what do you think of the problems that Web3 technology can solve? And maybe what are some of the ones it can't solve? Mm. And how are those conversations sort of evolving this week and, and with this integration of sort of the social political climate, you know, and the technologists? So I'm really curious about that and, and what your, your hopes and aspirations are yeah. for this new fund. Thank you for that. So. Um, we have to be very clear what's driving adoption in our space currently is the speculative part of uh, blockchain, the cryptocurrencies, right? The investing that everybody can uh, can do, right? I personally find it the boring part, but it's still driving what's happening Would out there. Would you still right? say it's it's a bit of a mania at this point? It's an absolute mania. Yeah. It's an All absolute right. mania. Well, That's my let's, opinion. Let's call right? a spade a spade. <clears throat> But um, it's still it's driving and it's creating innovation and and that's good. I, uh, you know that you need regulation will kick in anyways, right? So let's let's drive this through innovation. And also, you know, being born in a first world country, we don't have any problems, right? No, everybody has access to finance, assurance is there. Clean if water. you buy a house, you know, it's yours, all of that, right? So the use cases of blockchain, they do much more cater to the needs of countries uh, like the ones in Africa, right? Or Southeast Asia, where you don't have these things, you know, where, you, where you're not banked, for example, mm -hmm. right? So you, you just don't have access to the financial system. And it's massive, the amount of people that don't have access to the financial system. Assurance, right? Land registry. We have a startup that is out of Ghana, um, House of Africa, that's called, where they are putting the land registry on a blockchain, right? And there you have the structure of, of Ghana. Is you also have regions, right? In Switzerland, we have the cantons. They have it as well. So we have 
a national registry, you have a communal registry or a cantonal registry, and then even villages have their own registry. So you might end up with three different registries, right? So, mm -hmm. and maybe so at some point someone says, mm, no, that's the one that's accurate, right? And you might not be in there, right? So what they're trying to create is that one uh, digital ledger-based registry so you can have assurance for your you know, land and yeah. own a house. Yeah, it's a principle that, that I find fascinating and it lends itself to a lot of optimism is this ability to leapfrog, exactly. right? I mean, we've seen it with the evolution of cell phones and the internet that developing countries, which again, there's been you know, literature around the fact that they're not developing anymore. You know, the countries that we thought yes. were developing countries like 10, 20 years ago, like they're doing pretty good. You give somebody a cell phone and the internet and all of a sudden they get on a more level playing field. And what you're bringing to the equation here is it's the infrastructure problem. I don't have a, a courthouse or like a town, you know, building with documents and all these stuff. You don't need it anymore. You have a decentralized ledger. We could just drop, drop it right into that culture and you can put everything on it and, and you, you can leapfrog over that antiquated building. And you don't even have to make the transition. Right from the antiquated building and all those documents onto the blockchain, it's it's fascinating. And you yep. access this access it through your smartphone or even you know first generation phones. It's also possible, and you know you cannot tamper with the data. It's there. You know it's immutable, right? And I think that's that's the sort of use cases that really cater to the needs of of, of Africa, right? And what we're doing, so you know we cannot solve all these problems, right? We're just facilitating, right? Mm -hmm. So. That's why we have this ecosystem approach. You need you need to bring the people together. You need to get you know the developers to the corporates that need the solutions. You need to bring technology there, right? To be honest, not all of Africa has broadband access, right? So that's also a problem that needs to be solved. So you you published a, a new report on Africa, and, and you shared a couple of those statistics that I thought were quite powerful. What was one sort of part of that report that even caught you by surprise in terms of what the numbers told? And it always goes back to the numbers, right? So we could see and feel our, our journey with Africa starting in 2018, where we would go together with the Swiss government kind of on a fact-finding mission, right? And we, we were actually in 2018 at the stock exchange in Choburg, which has some symbolic message right you are talking about blo blockchain at the stock exchange that could potentially disrupt the way people train right mm -hmm. so that was pretty interesting so the financial sector was there and it was a great discussion and you know the feedback it resonates so much with people and you could feel that energy right so throughout the journey since 2018 we could see and feel that you know there's something happening and it's growing fast but now seeing the numbers it was really like wow you know so and what are some of those numbers so just venture capital more has more than doubled Vent global spending venture capital has more than doubled last year right wow. but it's even more so within the blockchain sector right we don't have great data from 2020 so we cannot really say but from Q1 2020 to Q1 2021 it's over 1100% uh, increase in funding into blockchain right that, that's really incredible so so just to, to wrap up and I know there's a lot of people you have to meet here um, you're hosting and want, don't want to take you away from that 
what's the name of the new fund called and, and the, re- the, the, the sort of symbolism behind the name? Uh, I think it's called Africa Early Stage Blockchain Fund. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's very I thought it had like a, I, I thought that I saw some oh, words on the screen. Kanako, you mean? Kanako, yeah. yeah. That is uh, Sesotho. That's one of the languages spoken in South Africa. It stands for It's Time. And for us, it's only the beginning. It's beautiful. And how can folks stay in touch with you and, and learn more about your, your fund and, and, and all the exciting projects that you're working on? We're very approachable, right? So our CV Labs team is on many events uh, all over the globe. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, on our website, cvvc.com, cvlabs.com. Just get in touch with us. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Been great. Thank you. All right, well, we've been really privileged to talk to these world leaders here in Davos, Switzerland. Thanks for joining us on this journey. We have reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks everyone for exploring with us. We've got space though for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends, recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. You can also come and participate in edgeofnft.com slash discord and get to know the community. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. And thanks for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.